going back to the pinnacle, how do you come to terms with love and hatred? How do you survive not only war, that, that person who's done three or four years has been deployed, or a 20-plus year career, in many ways, I think is harder than war. How do you witness the worst of humankind and come back to live a life of drudgery and dullness? Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Dr. Robert Forston is a retired Army psychiatrist. He retired as a colonel after serving for 26 years on active duty. He currently is a senior clinician and psychiatry consultant at the DC War-Related Illness and Injury Study Center. In this episode, you'll hear insights and lessons learned from a wealth of tactical, operational, and strategic medical leadership experience, both in conventional and special forces. He's an expert and has done research in PTSD, MTBI, substance use disorders, and adult ADHD. Dr. Forston highlights some of the events from his career that may assist future military medical healthcare professionals to succeed in a variety of roles and responsibilities. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel, Dr. Robert D. Forston to War Docs. Bob, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Doug. And it's a true honor, and I have to say, I'm humbled to be here to share my stories. Given my affiliations, the comments expressed here today are my own. They don't reflect the official policy or position of the Department of Veterans Affairs, Uniformed Services University, or the U.S. government. So that said, as Doug, I mean, you invited me back in somewhere in 2020 when I was preparing to retire. I was sitting, just sitting at West Point during COVID, but it really took me a while to finally agree because I just wasn't ready. And I'm still not at 100%. I'm getting there. It was really difficult to retire from me. I, I mean, I love the Army. But for two decades, going at 100 miles per hour and after retiring, dropping down to just like 10 miles an hour, even immediately retiring, going to work for the VA, it's just a much lower op tempo. Dr. Forston, you were commissioned through the Army's Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC, and then attended medical school on a health profession scholarship program, HPSP. What sparked your interest in the Army and medicine? Okay, Wayne. So I'll use this story as an example how about how relationships and mentoring help you not only through the military, but all aspects of life. I had a solid family history of military service. My grandfather and his two sons, my grandfather in World War II, his two sons, one in Vietnam. My dad served at MI on the Czech border, pulled the gap in Germany. And my other grandfather, his five siblings all served in World War II. And he always regretted because he was the one sibling that had to stay home on the farm. But he always re regretted that. And my older brother, Mark, he was also serving when I went to college. So I will say that joining ROTC was probably, aside from attending college, he probably the only responsible decision I made as an 18-year-old. And I say that because I knew going in that I was going to do at least 20 years, not only for the retirement financially, but medical benefit. So anyway, I applied to West Point as a senior in high school, and I went to the regional interview. I was sitting there from nine to four, and I'm the only one there. And about 
I don't know, I'd say about 10 officers all in their class A, some are whites because some were Navy. And one looks at me and says, what are you doing here? So I show him my invitation letter and, and he just looks stumped and all of them might say looked a little embarrassed. So they go back in, they couldn't find my records, my application. And the interview took only about five minutes, but due to my lack of mentorship, I should have been discussing my multifamily history. You know, nobody prepared me to present myself. It's, suffice to say, they didn't accept me and I was a little dejected. So due to financial constraints, my mom had lost a job. I attended locally where I grew up here in Pennsylvania. So I'm going to college. I, I become a biology major because I was interested in marine biology. I'd been interested in sciences throughout grade school and high school. And the first week I'm there, I tracked down the ROTC folks. And the tech that I talked to, he says, hey, you know, not only are the classes interesting, which they were, you know, it's, it's a pretty easy A and will help you out with your GPA. So in terms of why I, I joined medicine, it was just pure fate. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today if it weren't for at least four just chance meeting, meetings that I can't chalk up to just luck. You know, somebody up there has to be looking up. But anyway, my college advisor, he tracks me down in the fall of my senior year, and he's surprised that I hadn't ever met with him. So there's two points there. He was a great teacher, but just a poor advisor. He should have tracked me down sooner. And as I always did when I was a Raider and then later a senior Raider, I always tracked people down at the beginning and at the end of the year. And I said, hey, 90 days, if I don't see you in 90 days, you need to track me down. I'm not going to come looking for you. So anyway, this guy says, your GPA looks pretty good. Do you ever consider going to medical school? And I said, now I'm going to the army. And since I was biology, I branched medical service corps thinking, okay, my biology degree would help me. You know, so he says, well, they're administering the MCAT here next week. I think it can get you a seat. If you, if you want to take it, take it. Here's the form and I'll meet with you out there and we'll go from there. You know, I take the test and results come in. I meet with them a month later and he says, your scores looked okay. Fill this form out and we'll shotgun uh, 12 applications to 12 schools you're choosing. So during this, this process of applications, my uncle went to Vietnam. He moved up to New Hampshire after Vietnam, like a lot of those vets did, just to get away from people. And he, he tells me, hey, you know, I think there's a medical school up here in Maine. So I do a couple of interviews out in the Midwest, Chicago, taking the train, totally out of my element. And my first time really away from Pennsylvania was airborne school between my junior and senior years. So I drove, drive up to Keene, New Hampshire, you know, in the southern part of New Hampshire in the Green Mountains. I stay with my uncle. Then I drive over to Maine on the early morning of the day of the interview. I'm wearing a suit jacket I bought from JCPenney that I've already worn in two interviews. So what I didn't get in those first two interviews was a campus tour. So I'm being escorted around by a second year a med student. And I'm thinking, man, I've got to go to school here. Five miles north of Kinneybunkport. It's right on the water. Absolutely just beautiful. So before I go into the interview, the second year says, hey, you may want to remove that price tag from your coat. So this is just, I've been to two interviews wearing this coat and the tag is still on the arm. So I go in, I sit down and interview. There's a panel of five people and the one in the middle says to me, so Robert, tell us, why do you want to be a DO? And so I'm looking at her, pause, pause. 
few seconds and I'm saying, I'm sorry, could you repeat that question? And she kind of looks somewhat confused and says, why do you want to be a doctor of osteopathy? And I say, again, pausing a couple of seconds, I'm, I'm sorry, I had no idea what you're talking about. I just had nobody preparing. So let me just, let me just close the loop on this real quick. So I get home, I'm shocked, God, hey, you're accepted. I take this to my, my lead tag, Jim Dahl. And at time, captain, retired colonel, 82nd Airborne, jumped into Grenada. And I said, hey, sir, you think I could get an educational delay? He said, no. So he said, hold on. Let me just, let me call buddy at Arperson, the old Arperson in St. Louis. So, and he says, his buddy says, yeah, fax it to me. I'll get it signed today. He faxed it back that day. Yeah. So what factors impacted your decision to become a psychiatrist once you graduated from medical school? I did my first clinical rotation between my second and third years because I'm HPSP. I go to Germany, do surgery. I'm with the staff, doc, not too hard. I go on to do another ortho rotation. I was thinking, I'm, I want to do surgery. And then I did a, my, my third rotation in the Army out of Tripler. And I'm assigned to a second-year re- resident. And I'm working 110 hours a week. One of the interns on the team was Tim Berrigan, who was a former Army dentist, got out, went to med school, came in, psychiatrist. But he was a psych intern. I just finished a, a psych rotation in med school at Jackson Burke Institute up in Portland, Maine, and working with adolescents. And I thought, hey, this is pretty good, make an impact with these kids. So after, really, I, I, you know, 110 hours a week, I, I was there 30 days. I had one day off, and that one day off, I went out surfing, snorkeling, and thinking I was hooked on Hawaii. I took up surfing and diving in Maine. So... The psych intern says, hey, you know, are you interested? And he says, so I interviewed with psychiatry. And then after finishing up, I wanted to go to psychiatry. So anyway, psych was great. So you were assigned as the first cavalry division psychiatrist at Fort Hood, Texas. Tell us about that time as that was also the time period in which 9-11 occurred was during that assignment. I'd met the uh, psychiatric consultant in Hawaii when he came out to meet everybody. And I wanted to be the division psychiatrist at 82nd, 101st, or 25th ID, just so I could stay in Hawaii. But the other ones were all off cycle. They'd all been assigned and it's a two-year assignment. So I go to a first cab and I get there and the first six months I was in, in a clinic. I was assigned to the old MSB, main support battalion, but working out of a clinic and after those first six months, I knew there's, there's nothing the Army could throw at me that I couldn't handle, up to a certain point. That was the first time I met General Corelli. So I'm at a hero farewell, and it's out, outdoors, and I've got my Stetson on, and I'd had my spur ride, and my wife and I are standing there. We've got our, our newborn daughter and our other kid in the stroller, one or two years old, and up up the driveway walks a guy wearing a Stetson with stars. So, okay, this is either the assistant division commander of supporter operations, one of them. And we're on the outskirts of the tent and he comes up and he says, hi, hey, major, because you wear your rank on your Stetson. He's like, what do you do? Well, sir, I'm your division psychiatrist. And he's like, we got one of those. And I don't know if he was joking, but he might not have known. So he grabs our kid. He said, you mind if I hold your kid? And he's just talking. He's like, what are you doing? And what are you seeing? 
And after I'm telling him what my mission is, he said, that, that psychiatrist would make great commanders because I deal with mostly behavioral health issues all day, not only with the soldiers, but with my staff as well. So I thought that was funny. And I said, well, sir, I'm going to get a beer. Do you want one? He's like, no. So my wife, Robbie, and I walk over to the keg and we're in. My wife says, who do we just leave our kid? I'm like, I have no idea, but he's got a star. I'm sure we're good. So after he, 10 or 15 minutes, which is a long time talking to him, he says, well, I got to go mingle. That's what I got to do with these things. I say, oh, Roger, sir. But after he left, what surprised me most is the, the number of majors and lieutenant colonels that just came to me in over the last 20 minutes and said, who are you? And how do you know General Corelli? So that competitive group of iron majors that all wanted to know, okay, and I was like, I just the first time in my life I've met, met them. <laughs> like I said, a very competitive group of folks that the Braggs, the Campbells, the Hoods, and that's what I would tell my iron majors and lieutenant colonels. It's like, hey, if you haven't been to the center of the universe, Bragg or Hood or Campbell, you need this on your ORB because those are discriminators on boards. One of the things that interests me is one of the jobs that you had during your distinguished career, and that was being the command psychiatrist for the U.S. Army Special Operations Command. And you did that for about five years. What was unique about taking care of that population of, of soldiers? And, and what did you learn from that? The stigma you hear about behavioral health, multiply that by 100 in the soft community. In the five years I was assigned to a USASOC, nobody wanted to come and see me. However, when word got out, and it was through word of mouth, either the battalion doc or group doc or PA or the 18 Delta, and then there was a few commanders. They got it. They got that, hey, this is important because they had issues. They weren't going to go get help, but they would certainly support anybody in their chain of command. We had at least 20 plus psychologists in the U.S. Army Special Operations, as well as the other special operations branches, they have psychologists, but I was the only psychiatrist. And to this day, there's only one psychiatrist in all of SOCOM. And I was that first guy and I, I thought I would never leave. But in the five years I was there, I'd worked about one and a half to two days over at Clark Clinic, which was the, the special operations clinic. And I probably saw at least a thousand operators. Most were senior enlisted. Warrants, which of course were prior enlisted, went to warrant, or officers. Every one of them were very, very sick, very sick. And every one of them wanted to go back and continue doing, knowing that they were just going to get worse. And so the big five that uh, I'm now still seeing at what I'm working now with at the War Related Illness and Injury Study Center down in Washington, D.C., it's part of the Health Administration. It's PTSD, TBI, insomnia, substance use disorders, and ADHD. So, yeah, the, or a combination, usually it was all five that, that these folks had. I mean, multiple, multiple TBIs, not to mention in combat, but in training mostly. But it's from high caliber weapons, 300 wind mags, up to 50 cals to Gustavs that these guys are firing, breaching times combatives. These guys are getting their head bell rung. But the didn't want to leave the team. So I think to this day, that's the what I'm most proud of. I had at least a half dozen of those guys that said, Hey doc, if I hadn't met you, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be alive today. 
So you mentioned your time where you spent in Operation Iraqi Freedom 1, OIF-1, and you were deployed with the 21st Combat Support Hospital. Can you give us any specific clinical examples of where your psychiatric expertise was needed during that time in Iraq in 2003? Outside of the surge in Iraq, OIF-1 was different than all the other OIF Federation. OIF-1, go over the berm, you don't know what you're expecting. Hey, you're, you're going to be there for... So initially, there was a bump in, in suicides, and, but it was every month up until about October that, hey, we're going home in three months. Okay, we're being extended. All right, we're going home next month, next month, next month. And then when October hit, it's like, we're here for a year. And then we saw another spike in suicide. But had it not been for the cohesiveness of our unit, because the 21st Profis, we go there and it's just like, it's uh, not us versus them. The, the people that are assigned to 21st, and then you have all these docs, nurses, and medics outside. We come in, they don't know us. And thankfully, we had Bob Lyons, who was former JSOC deputy surgeon. He, he former SF, a long tag. He was our DCCS. He pulled us all together. So it was myself and like 15 other docs, had a couple of nursing this, this, all living in a tent. We didn't have the shoes, using bathroom in a hole that wooden box that we would just lift up, move to a new, new hole when it got filled. It was just a different level of stress. And initially on, I was seeing a lot of people. Nobody knew where, what was. There wasn't the combat stress control units weren't set up yet. Everybody was sent to me. People would just be driven up to the cache, soldiers dumped out, and they'd take off. And for the first three three weeks, we couldn't contact these units. So I'd have all these site casualties have to set up a tent out in the side of the cache. And, but yeah, but, but I have to say, I mean, that group that year, was, we were a pretty cohesive, well-run unit. So when you set up a psych tent like that, what are you trying to accomplish with the soldiers that are placed there? Are you thinking that they're returned to duty? Or are you thinking that they're eventually going to need medevac? Like, what is sort of the psychiatric thought process? We just had to find their units to get them back to their units. My goal was to return as many as I could. But throughout that, while, while we, not counting Kuwait, because I sent people back in Kuwait, but 11 months in Iraq, I think I, I evac only 80 soldiers. So my intent was, hey, just sit here, chill, rest, but you're going back to your unit. And you had mentioned that there were psychiatric casualties. What, what exactly, how would you describe that to someone who maybe doesn't understand what a psychiatric casualty is? Well, it's just, you can't tolerate a certain level of, of stress. I mean, it's, it's hot. You just, the comforts of life. Many of the kids that I saw sat there and said, this isn't why I joined the Army. I joined the Army to go to college for the GI Bill. Okay, just keep an eye on you, but yeah, you're probably going to go back. I look at a study done after World War II, and General Marshall, the chief of staff, said there was one psychiatrist in particular, when we were ramping up, Marshall said, this guy almost lost the war for us because at the time, you know, the F-class system, he 4 f was the psychiatric. The way they evaluated the draftees was developed by this one psychiatrist, but that led to 4 f 2.3 million soldiers. So they fixed that and they got these 4Fs back in, but they later did a study of all the 4Fs that came in and they looked at, all right, which of them 
you know, were able to sustain combat for 60 days. And that 60-day mark was there was at least one WIA or KIA in every day of that 60 days. And of that group, nine out of 10 made it through World War II. So they weren't site casualties, even though we thought, okay, maybe they would be. And interesting, 2% had no issues and looked at that 2% and they had sociopathic traits. Kind of what you need if you're going to have soldiers that can just drive on and don't have any guilt, don't have any issues. But that for OIF won the push, I can remember just seeing things. I mean, bodies split in half from a 50 cal round, just burning tanks, burning bodies. That's what I mean. I mean, at some point, every brain is different. The brain is so complex that, all right, a mortar round that lands 20 yards from me, okay, I, I, I survived. Somebody else, no, they're completely freaked out and can't, can't move forward from that. And does the Army have ways to predict now those, the people that may respond significantly to that type of stress? There's no way to predict that. What's the number one reason you're, you're sent home from a deployment or, or sent to the rear for, while being deployed? It's dental. So that's why we have dentists. The number two reason is psych. And it's always been, the, the question is, we go back to, that's why I brought up the World War II study. It's like, well, why don't we do psychological testing at the MEP stations so we can weed out something? Because the cost ratio doesn't work. That's why I say we're willing to take our chances with all of, there's only a few questions. And I mean, you don't even have to say, like, hey, you have this? Yes or no? No. Yes. Recruiter. Hey, if you write. Yes. I mean, you're going to have to get a waiver and probably, so no. But with the structure of the army, you're, you're told, hey, be here, do with this equipment, we're going to do this with the structure the army provides and any military branch for that matter. Right? Nine out of 10 of those folks that would be problems typically in the civilian sector, they do well. And going back to the soft community, of course, all of those guys and some were gals in psychological operations and civil affairs. There's a different screening process there. If you're in special operations, you've been, you've made it through basic AIT, some sort of air assault, airborne. So you're self-selecting yourself. You're raising your hands, volunteering to do these things, ranger school, Q course. So that's what I'll say about special operations is it was, there was no BS. Very little, I'll say. I mean, if you, if you had to be spoken to twice, you are gone. When you were with the, the soft community and in a deployment situation, what was the most challenging clinical case that, that you encountered? The most challenging case, I mean, it was a guy that we're called to in the middle of the night, out in the middle of nowhere. This guy, I'll say, he, he had his wedding band stuck at the base of his penis. And it's like two in the morning and swollen. They've tried the ring cutter. And I, I just say this because it's the only case. I mean, all the cases were the same except for this. So they asked me to see this guy the day after just to make sure he's okay. But we had to wake up the entire camp because we couldn't get this thing off. It was, it was titanium or tungsten. We just couldn't cut through it. And you're going to have nerve damage after a certain time period. So anyway... We're dremeling this guy and holding an IV bag just to keep the dremel cool. And the dremel would skip and, you know, it'd go and cross some sensitive areas. And this guy would be like, oh, keep going, keep going, keep going. 
But so the next morning, I got to say, hey, what the heck happened? What were you thinking? What were you doing? I said, sir, I have no idea. I mean, I usually take my wedding band off. I put it up on the thing. And next thing you know, I wake up. And it's like, what the heck's going on? And that was it. But like I said, the whole camp woke up. And we made a run for supplies. We flew to, to Bagram. And I'm standing there in the chow hall. And there are some guys, Camp Vance. And there's some guys next to me. And it's like, hey, they're not medical. But hey, did you hear about that guy on the rock? It was like. So this whole story spreads. But in terms of challenging cases, I was the personal recovery guy for, uh, for the youth suck surgeon's office. So I look at the policy and it's like, hey, the, it's recommended, highly recommended right here that the PR guy goes to SEER. So I want to go to SEER. So I can talk about that because as a psychiatrist going to SEER, very interesting. But like, hey, flight surgeon, Dalton Diamond became the surgeon after Joe Carvalho. And he's like, hey, Bob, I need you to do this flight evaluation. It was a crash or close, close, hard, hard landing. And I'm like, all right, sir, but I, I'm not a flight surgeon. He's like, you're not? You're going next month. But those are the opportunities. That, I mean, jump in, fun, just opportunities that best, best docs I ever worked with. Like uh, the Drews, as I call them, Drew Landers, who's over in Germany now, Drew Morgan, who's an astronaut, guy could do everything. But the Pete Benson, the Buck Bensons, the PA, who Buck gave me that blood shit when I left, legend from Vietnam to pretty much every deployment stop was on. Jim Zarnick, Russ Coatwall, Rob Lutz. I mean, these are heroes of mine. And I never wanted to leave because I was having so much fun. But then I got picked up for command. I gave those guys so much grief that, hey, you guys are the best medical leaders we have in MedCom at least from a physician standpoint, that when I was selected for command, I didn't want to be a hypocrite and, and turn it down. And that, that's another point, just thinking about it. Medical Service Corps officers, I always say, made the best leaders, no matter, regardless of the situation, because they grew up in the trenches. They learn how to become leaders and how leadership works. Not to say docs and nurses and PAs and especially Corps can't because they lead, they, but they lead clinics. So yes, there's a number of doctors. That, there's five MMBs in the army. And that's usually as a lieutenant colonel battalion command, that's the one command that if you're selected to command an MMB, you're going places. But for me, getting picked up to go to Korea, it's like, how does a guy get picked up that spent five years as, mostly as a lieutenant colonel as a staff officer in the same job, get selected to command Korea. And Korea was very, very difficult, not only because I'd never been there, but it was the only DOD medical command that was a dual command. Because we've been in Korea for many years, the 121 landed at Incheon in 25 September 1950 and never left. Longest serving unit in Korea. So, of course, hard stand hospital, and now we've got a second, much larger hospital at Humphreys, but you also have a combat support hospital, the 121 Cash, and then later in 2008, named after Brian Allgood, the Hard Structure Hospital. But you, in addition to providing health care, you also have to two or three times a year go out to the field, and you've got to figure out that that's, that, that was a challenge, big challenge. One of the things that you talked about when we started was 
all of that experience that you had from the time you started off as a psychiatrist, and then you went through several units in conventional forces, special operations forces, then you went into command, some other leadership roles. But you also mentioned that that kind of stopping that and then transitioning from 150 miles an hour, 190 miles an hour to retirement, that has been challenging. And you said it took maybe three or four years. Can you talk a little bit about that transition and what kind of problems folks who have seen things and spent times on active duty are experiencing when they make that transition? If you spend 20 plus years in any branch of the service, it just becomes a part of your identity. And from the time I was 18, young adult, until the time I retired, you know, September 2020, the Army took care of it. It was like, hey, you're going to go here next and you're going to do this. So there, there's no worry. Now, when you, you're losing that parachute, it's like, hmm. I termed it the pinnacle. I love the Army, but it's a trap. I mean, they keep promoting you, you've heard of, to the, your level of incompetence. And I just kept getting promoted to... One, two, one, I got picked up for 18th Medcom. That got deferred because I got picked up for War College, which I tried to defer. And General Brooks, the best general officer I ever served with, he said, Bob, I just can't. General O is not deferring anybody. And you're asking for not only a one-year, but a three-year deferment. To, you're going to work for me for a year as a surgeon and then do command for two years and then go to War College. But going back to the pinnacle, how do you come to terms with love and hatred. How do you survive not only war, that, that person who's done three or four years has been deployed, or a 20-plus year career, in many ways, I think is harder than war. How do you witness the worst of humankind and come back to live a life of drudgery and dullness? And that's why I say there's a pinnacle, you know, a lot of these kids that have deployed once and get out, and that's a lot of times the pinnacle of their life is this deployment, which, like I said, a lot of times they've witnessed the worst humankind. Many of the soft guys that had Valor Awards, and I worked with many, they hated those Valor Awards because you get a Valor Award per part, something bad happened on that day. And they looked at those and it caused so much grief and, and guilt that I should have done this. If I was providing better Overwatch, so-and-so wouldn't have been killed or injured. But Chris Free coined the term operator syndrome and a guy Dr. James Giordano down at Georgetown calls it post-enablement distress syndrome. But it's in particular with our soft units, but also many of our conventional units. We make supermen or women, and when they can no longer do that, it becomes a problem. And I saw this most in, in at USASOC and SOC, mainly, mainly men that were promoted off the team, meaning, and I'll just use the 18 guys, for example. They got to a certain point in an enlisted career, senior NCO. It's like, well, how can I stay on the team? They'd go to the warrant school, get back on the team. And then eventually they get promoted to a rank, whether it was you get to E8 or E9, you get to major lieutenant colonel, or you get to W4 or 5, that you're off the team and you're, you're riding the desk. So you get sent to battalion staff, you get sent to group staff, you get to sent to U.S. Army Special Forces Command staff, U.S. Army Special Operations Command staff, SOCOM Command staff down in Tampa, and they just can't deal with that. 
And I bring up the term of hyperarousal syndrome. So there's, there's a point, and this is when you're outside the wire, stress is like this. When you're inside the wire, okay, it's still safe, but you can maybe get a rocket or he goes off and starts shooting somebody. But also in garrison, particularly in garrison, particularly for saw, because they'd rotate back, they take a month off, then they'd start training for six months. There's a constant bombardment of your, your RAS, your reticular activating system, which deals with stress and stress hormones, that after a certain point, and this is why I say sometimes it's harder for people in 20 plus years, it can't be turned off. How do these folks keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going? And it's like you know, Dana Gould, the comedian, he had a just a skit. It's like, hey, wouldn't astronauts go crazy? You know, after going on a mission to a moon, wouldn't life just be one big disappointment after another? It's like, you know, you're out fishing. Golly gee, I caught a fish. This reminds me of the time I walked on the friggin' moon. So there was a period of time in your career when you were the Walter Reed program director. And we've discussed many times in your interview where you had mentors that people helped shape your career. But this was a period of time where you actually assigned to be the mentor to many training psychiatrists in the army. What was the, the uniqueness of training a military psychiatrist versus what a psychiatrist in the civilian sector might be? And how do you see that that may change in the future? I leave Fort Hood, 2004, I go to Walter Reed. Hey, we need you to set up this PTSD program, set up an intensive outpatient program. And during that period, it was mostly OIF. We got some OEF, but except for burn patients, everybody came to Walter Reed. And we were, you know, I was the medical director. We were the busiest service in the entire Department of Defense looking at workload statistics. Because most of the evacs that came in for psych went immediately to Ward 54, which was our inpatient unit. They'd stay there, then they'd come to our outpatient intensive services. But if you've been to the old Walter Reed, they had the Malone house. So everybody's camped out at the Malone house. I'd say at least 50% of the 13 or 1400 patients are, are, are psych related. We had a couple of incidents of psych patients trying to jump over the wall at the White House. And then brackets and all the contractors, contractors that do work orders, they move from 500 down to a hundred or 80 or 90. So nothing was getting, getting fixed. You had a president of the PEB at the time, I won't say his name, who was a psychiatrist, but he was also a former lawyer. And he wouldn't approve any psych-related medical evaluation boards to be processed through the physical evaluation board disability unless they showed evidence from a company commander or higher that, yes, this incident did occur. So that's why the population went up. And you had the incident of the mold in building 18 or 19, I forget. And then the Washington Post article hits, which I remember I'm sitting there on a Saturday morning. I've got the kids. I'm sitting there waiting to get the oil changed, Jiffy Lube in my truck. And I get a phone call and it's like, hello. And it's like, hi, this is sorry. It was one of the two reporters from that article. I'm like, can I help you? And they're like, yeah, we just want to let you know tomorrow morning on the Sunday edition, the, our, the, this is going to come out and you're going to be mentioned in it. Like, what? And it, it was something, it was Ward 53. That was the uh, patient intensive psychiatry. Anyway, 
I said, hey, thank you, but please don't don't call me again. So I immediately, I call my department chair. I'm like, sir, I just got this weird phone call. This is going to come out. And he calls the DCCS, Chuck Callahan at the time, who was my mentor at Tripler and still mentor to this day. He's like, Bob, did you talk to the press? I'm like, sir, no way. So that hits, and I was on orders to go to USASOC at the time. And I will say in terms of residencies, we had between 50 or 60 residents a year. So we are a huge program, probably one of the largest in the U.S., including civilian programs, residents and fellows. My job as the, the, I was the assistant program director because the NCR was Walter Reed, Bethesda, and Andrews Air Force Base. But most of the psych residents stayed at Walter Reed, rotated through Walter Reed, because we needed them there because of the casualties there. And it was just so busy. So there wasn't as much training, but in my job as the assistant PD, and I was gunning to be the PD until I got the call to be USASOC. And we had residents at Walter Reed to this day that they're, they're still in the army running things that they were great and they were not great. It was an inverted bell curve. I mean, most of them were good to really good. And there were a few that were. That was a challenge for me. It was a challenge for me in many ways because I'll say it was a challenge. Things happened for me down downrange. I got home, turned on the TV, literally got home, turned on the TV, kids unpacking suitcases, CNN's on November 4th, 2009. CNN's on, it's like shooting banner, shooting at Fort Hood. So, hey, kids, leave that on, go upstairs and play. I'm bringing in suitcases, and then I see psychiatrist kills people in Fort Hood. Okay, and I'm still bringing in luggage. And then I see his photo up there, and I'm like, oh, my God. Fast forward into April of the next year, and Pete Benson, who was the surgeon, took over for Dalton Diamond. And Pete comes into my office. He said, like, hey, Bob, the Surgeon General, this is Schumacher. He's been trying to track you down for the last day. What's going on? And he's got, so he sits down in my office and he says, I got a delivery. Yeah, I was told I have to read this. So he's reading me a counseling statement from the secretary of the army. And I'm like, well, that's interesting, Pete. Let me show you this though, because this is really important. What I got going on doing this brief or whatever plan I was doing. He's like, Bob, this is real serious. I'm like, Pete, ever since this came out in November, there wasn't anything I could do. And there's really nothing I could do now. He's like, well, you can go to lawyers. And, and I, the friends that I've talked about, those guys and other people that I knew also had to say, they all lawyered up. I never got a lawyer. And my moral of that is I knew the army was going to do the right thing. But later on, uh, you know, HHC commander, Mario Soto, he calls me in July and he said, hey, sir, what happened? They're having an IG inspection, so they're checking their flags. And he just sees that, hey, my name's on his flag list. He's like, what happened? Were you TDY? Did you get a DY or something? I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Mario. And he's like, well, you're flag. And so we reach out. We start reaching out. And I'm like, this is a three-star command. And it's like, hey, who? why is this guy flagged? And nobody could tell him. HRC, why is he flagged? We're not tracking his flag. Nobody knew I was flagged. But I was flagged for 18 months. I was selected at the time. I was Lieutenant Colonel Promotable, but I couldn't pin on until 18 months. This whole flag was resolved. And, but essentially it was, Hey, 
Dr. Foriel, at the time from the Second Army, you failed to do a change of radar. And when, when like I said, Pete Benson read me this, I'm like, I, I know I submitted because I was that doc that sat down with you initially, like I said, sat down with you at the end of the year and in between there, but he was one that I never saw him. He never showed up for the initial, never showed up for the 30, 90 days, never showed up for the final. So in my rebuttal to the whole Sec Army thing, I gave him, hey, here's all the OERs I submitted. And at the time, you know, it wasn't electronic. It was right at the last, I signed them all, submitted them, had all the proof and everything. So, but it, it took a long time, but I knew the army would do the right thing. And they did. And part of me feels because after that all cleared, the Surgeon General and General Mahone was the commander of USASOC. Yeah, I worked for him for three years. Yeah, he said, hey, you know what, Bob? Both of them told me this. They said, there were two four stars at the higher level. I have to assume one was Pete Corelli. They had your back the whole time. And to each one of them, I said, sir, I really wish you would have let me know that before I had to go through 18 months. Of, you know. Well, you had mentioned earlier about the constant stress and the activation of the reticular activating system. I can't imagine how much stress you were going through during this 18-month period of time. Here you've known someone who's you've trained and has injured other people, and now you're undergoing an investigation. Having had gone through something like that and having the expertise in mental health that you have, what advice would you give to other people who may find themselves encountering overwhelmingly stressful situations in which they have no control of? In life, everybody has a certain IQ. Everybody has a certain work ethic. Everybody has a certain personality or temperament. And with SOF, I will add, in order to succeed, you've got to do PT. I mean, it's one thing. I mean, if you're a good leader, it does help you if you can score 300 on your PT test. Just because, I mean, you're a model to, to the soldiers that are in your command. But as, as General Horho, she coined the, the triad. And what you guys asked me earlier about retiring, I will say after retirement, it took me about six months until I finally started sleeping eight hours a night. And that was the first time in over 20 years I was getting a good solid eight hours of sleep a night. I mean, I was that guy, I was always first, and USASOC Special Operators was good in terms of, we don't care when you did your work, as long as it got done. And I'd come into work three, three thirty, do some work, go over to the 24-hour gym they had, but sleep, I'd say, is important, but just the just activity, just working out. For me, I, I'm not, I, I, I don't need to put on a ruck and ruck 12 miles anymore, but I try to still work out three, four times a week. And I mean, in the gym, if not, I, you know, I'm walking around the, we've got 21 acres here and I, I walk that almost every day. So, but there are things, like you said, that were beyond my control, but I held trust in people that I knew that were going to take care of me. Another situation occurred that for me, I'm, I'm not going to bring it up here because it's just too painful. But basically, Yusasak told me, hey, go home, report in once a week, take as much time as you need. And literally, I mean, it's like, just call us, let us know you're doing okay. And that's, again, I'll mention Mario Soto. He'd come out to my house and check on me, but it was like a month that I, I'd say, all right, I got to go back to work. 
because, I mean, that was such a huge part of my identity. But they, they seriously would have let me just stay at home for like six months. You know, you put in your time, they are definitely going to take care of you. And I mean, I, I hate to use the example of a lot of that community medicated with alcohol. I saw two soldiers, senior ranks, NCOs, team guys, operators, both had three DUIs in one month. And both were kept in because we knew, hey, you were, we need to retain that experience. So for me, it's like my, my job was to help these guys keep going. Although I didn't lie to them. Everyone I said, you're just going to get worse if you redeploy. Okay. In five years, I did medical evaluation boards on two people. And those people, one was blown up several times, some V's raised up five, six times up, out, off the ground. Another one, I personally saw him and keep in touch with them to this day, but I personally saw him, helicopter landed on the other side and shot down Pakistan. And there was a firefight and you can see the goat trail switchbacks, just all these combatants coming down. But those two guys were just like, I've had enough. I can't do anymore. And I mean, just they'd, they'd done enough. They'd done 10 times, 100 times more than what your average person would do. But prior to 9-11, any soft operation that went off, I mean, you could write a book about it. After 9-11, in certain times of Afghanistan and Iraq, these guys were going out on killer capture missions almost nightly. When I was in Afghanistan, it was, I'd say, at least two to three times a week. But I... I done this and for, for that community to, to accept one, a psychiatrist to begin with, but two, to allow me to deploy and, and, and be out in that group. It was just, like I said, that was the pinnacle. I get an M9. When I get to a rod, it's like, hey, you're going outside the wire. You need an M4. So I grab an M4 off the rack. The 18 Delta sets up the little sandbag and on, on the range inside the wire. Send three, shoot three, and... But it was, it was perfectly zeroed. So, I mean, I'm shooting with an ACOG and I've got a shot group this big. And so he does the little, you know, marker. And I go back and I'm laying down. I'm in the sandbags. You know, he's like, all right, send him again, sir. Like, are you coming back? And she's like, no, nah, just send him. And I mean, standing right next to the target. And this is like the mentality. It's like, it's like no fear. So I shoot three more and he steps aside and marks him. All right, send three more. Again, he's like, all right, you're good. So you've had now three years to reflect a little bit about your time on active duty. What would you want the history books to say about your career in military medicine? So when they're written 50, 100 years from now, what would you want your legacy to be? I really don't care about a legacy for myself. Really don't. I mean, honestly, all this stuff you see in this office, I was at West Point. I wasn't here. My wife and my oldest daughter set it all up. I, I would have said, just keep it in the garage. And I still got half the stuff that's burning. I am very, in terms of being the first psychiatrist assigned to special operation, and which is continuing to this day. They're on their, I don't know, fifth or sixth. But I remember I was a, I was a resident at Tripler, third year resident. And at the time, Colonel Volpe was sent there to kind of reblue his clinical skills. He's walking down the hall and I pass him and I see he's got a SOCOM. You know, I just see the, the spear and I see a SOCOM patch and I walk by him and I turn around and I said, Hey, sir. 
And he's like, yeah. And Colonel General Volpe, yeah. He said, how do I get in that unit? And he's like, oh, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm a resident. Yeah, but in what? A psychiatry. And he's like, you're never going to be in that unit or this unit, he said. But he took me under his wing and he, I mean, he shared his medic medic and the horrors of combat, the papers he wrote in the war college from his task force ranger Somalia time. But anyway, my legacy, just to be the first soft psychiatrist, I, I've told many, many people, I, I wish if I, there were, there were only two regrets I had for my entire career. And one is I should have never left the use of soft. Never. Even though I, I had done a lot, you look at my bio, I did a lot of great things. Puerto Rico, we were on the D-surf mission. And so we're ready to go. When you're on D-surf mission, you're on for an entire year. So... Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria happens. I'm sent there as a task force med commander, joint command. So I've got a bunch of army medical units, but all most of my staff I know. I should have had 60 staff, at least 65. I was allowed 20. One of those guys said, hey, you know what? First there's a need, then there's greed. And that's my example I'll use is the, the comfort sitting there, a million dollars a day, seeing civilians, which are Americans. But Hey, I need a pair of glasses. Well, okay, you lost your other glasses? No, I got my other glasses. I just want another pair. That kind of stuff. I, I lost a chunk of my sanity in Puerto Rico. And I'll say this because it's very political with the governor and at the time, President Trump. But it just appalled me that the media never showed the true devastation of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, because we had that mission too. But they never showed the true devastation, the actual military response to Americans, Puerto Rican and Virgin Island folk. And they never showed the true gratitude of each of those groups that were truly just completely grateful we were there. But I say I, it was, it was what, what it would, uh, you know, it was 15, 16 hour days. And I'd go back to my hoot. But if you remember at that time, that guy up in North Korea was launching ballistic missiles into the Sea of Japan and over Japan. And we were spun up for that mission too. So I'd go back and I'd be answering emails for three or four hours during the night. Because when I was at 121, there's no plans for every contingency. And when you take, you know, something happens, take it off the shelf, change O to W, becomes a war plan. And it's like, well, this unit's supposed to do this. That doesn't make sense. Bringing the reserve unit to do this, they're not going to know what they're doing. This is the unit that should be doing it. And some poor guy has to figure that out when it occurs. Well, fast forward three years later, well, I'm that guy that has to do it. <laughs> anyway. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Robert Forston on Wardock's podcast. Bob, thanks for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Appreciate your time. Thank you both. And again, very honored and completely humbled. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.